Here we go. Hey guys, uh, this is Gad Saad for The Sad Truth. Today I have uh, one of the great evolutionists who I only just found out uh, retired. Maybe he'll tell us about his uh, new stage in life. This is uh, Professor Randy Thornhill, who is a professor emeritus of biology at University of New Mexico. I visited New Me University of New Mexico back in 2006. We'll talk about that. Uh, Randy's research interests span insects all the way up to humans, and I think maybe peppered with some bird, maybe one or two bird studies. Uh, some of your interests include facial attractiveness, facial and body symmetry, the menstrual cycle, the major histocompatibility complex, a set of genes that link up with your immunogenetic profile, uh, human sexuality, uh, parasite stress theory, the digit ratio, among many other topics. So there's probably we could talk for about six hours straight. Your books include uh, a classic in entomology, the evolution of insect mating systems back in 1983, when I had just graduated from high school, my goodness. A natural history of rape, We'll talk about that. That caused a lot of unnecessary controversy. Controversy, The evolutionary biology of human sexuality, of, of female sexuality, and then the parasite theory of values and sociality. Did I cover pretty much everything, Randy? You did. All yeah. right. Well, it's good to see you, Randy. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll start with uh, when did you retire from uh, the University of New Mexico? It's been about two years now. I retired from my, uh, you know, teaching position there. So I'm not teaching anymore. I'm doing a little teaching via this mechanism. That is, I'm giving lectures here and there uh, at different uh, outlets and universities. And uh, so I'm doing, you know, keeping the teaching going a little bit that way, but not any uh, classroom teaching. Are, are, do you feel a sense of relief that you're no longer doing that? Or is that something that you missed? Do you regret that you're no longer doing it? Where, where do you stand? Uh, I miss it. miss it. I miss the classroom teaching. And uh, I'm a teacher at heart. I really, uh, I really uh, value that. And um, so, uh, but I'm still dabbling a little bit in research. Right. And by, and by dabbling, it's probably you're still more productive than 99% of other academics, but you're too modest to actually say it. So I'll say it for you. Uh, now, but what do you, I mean, so you're, 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 I think you're 20 years older than me. I think you're born in, if I don't, if you don't mind me saying 1944, I'm 1964. So I'm about 20 yeah. years behind you in terms of my career. And I have to say, I'm also someone who, who adores, you know, teaching and being in front of the classroom and I'm a performer and I'm passionate and I'm animated but I have found that at my stage of my career right now some of the administrative elements of our profession whether it be the departmental stuff the administration stuff the woke stuff the grading the whining uh, that stuff I can I've, I've really grown to be very impatient of is, is this something that bothered you or you were willing to suffered those costs because you love teaching so much i try i did my best to minimize it okay. uh, and uh, was pretty successful at minimizing it basically the argument was look how productive i am research wise look how good my teaching reviews are and uh so don't put me on a lot of committees <laughs> university was very kind I, I don't i never learned how to type uh in the culture i grew up in only women learned to type the old south All right so they, uh, that was an argument for giving me a secretary very early on. So I had a I had a very very capable and wonderful secretary for my whole career, who handled just about everything that I need. 
Wow. You know, it's funny that you talk about typing because uh, I should probably do a, a, a whole episode, a short episode talking about this. Probably the most pragmatically relevant course that I ever took was in grade nine. We had these half courses and I took a typing course at the time. So this is probably 1980, maybe. Uh, it was still on typewriters where we had to learn how to use the app. Yeah. And, and I learned how to type the way that a secretary would. So I think, so even till today, you can dictate something to me and I could type without looking. And I have found that given the subsequent career that I've had as an author, that it's probably been the most practically relevant course that I've ever taken. Oh yeah, I can understand that. I can hunt and peck. But my, most of mine are just scribbling it out and giving to the secretary and she does a good job in, in making it look good. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, did you, uh, you said that, uh, we'll just talk a few more minutes about your sort of your, the new stage of your life as a retired professor. Yeah. And then we'll go on to technical stuff. Uh, do you find that what you're doing now with this new medium is something that you kind of discovered after you've retired or was it something that you sort of always had a vision that this is, I really want to get into these new mediums? Uh, just something I kind of discovered out of um, interest that others have had in the work. So they contact me. Uh, I mean, well, that's what we're doing here today. Exactly. Uh, and uh, so I talk about my research and so forth. And that has a teaching element because there is an audience of people who are interested and uh, open-minded and so forth. And a lot of my stuff requires some open-mindedness, as you know. Uh, so... Um, I just use it that way uh, and, and enjoy it very much. That's yeah. that's wonderful. All right, so let's uh, get down to some of the scientific stuff. How did so? You were trained in uh, your PhDs in zoology. Your your background is in entomology. Uh, how did you make the switch, or not not the full switch? Because I'm sure you dabbled back and forth. But what led you to say, okay, let me now take some of my evolutionary insights and apply them to the human animal rather than to you know, the insect taxa. What was that switch? How did it happen? Um, let's see. The, uh, you know, longstanding interest in human behavior and psychology, even as a kid trying to figure people out a little bit. And, um, but then all of a sudden in the 70s, there was launched, um, you know, the application of evolutionary principles to animal behavior and a few people were thinking about the application of evolutionary principles uh, to human beings. And much of that was going on where I was in the graduate program at the University of Michigan. Um, Dick Alexander and uh, a little bit later, Bill Hamilton and so forth uh, was there. And uh, so it was much in the air. And uh, it struck me as something that... Uh, that I was very interested in, you know, and wanted to figure, figure people out. And of course, evolutionary principles, uh, that's the way to, to do it, as you well know. <laughs> well, I mean, you and I know, and it seems terribly obvious that it could be the only way. What, what, what other game in town could there be other than applying the evolutionary lens to understand human beings in general and our human mind in particular? And yet, you know, maybe a bit less so, but it remains highly controversial. Have you seen in the 40 or plus years that you've been trying to do this, applying EP, evolutionary psychology to the, you know, to the human condition, are you seeing lesser resistance or are we still fighting the same battles? 
I think there's less resistance overall. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, anti-intellectualism toward applying evolutionary ideas to human behavior and psychology and naivete, uh, you know, basic failure of uh, Western education systems that don't start teaching kids in grammar school about evolution and building on that. That would be the uh, that would really be in people's interest because, uh, you know, you can't you don't have any self-knowledge, really, unless you understand yourself as a product of evolution and certainly can't understand your, the humans around you without that knowledge. So that's about as fundamentally important for the education of a human being as uh, as any other uh, as any other area of knowledge. So. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it, just a fascination with, uh, with people. The culture I grew up in was very weird, the Old South, very conservative uh, culture, uh, like the one you grew up in, I'm sure. Uh, very much overlap there with uh, basic ideology and so forth. And those folks fascinated me. I wonder how they got in that shape, because uh, I, I was different uh, from them in general. The conservatives there, and uh, then later I got into academics and a bunch of liberals, and uh, wondered how they got net shaped. <laughs> <laughs> and serious uh, research on uh, Corvée as a people. Yeah. So your early career was in entomology. Then, of course, you know a lot. Your subsequent career was a lot more with humans. Have you? How often have you reverted back to? Studying insects. I'm reverting back. I've got a project going in a field project now that I'm uh, hopefully finishing up this this year in the spring and summer uh, in Alabama on uh, insects called hanging flies and a weird thing that I started when I was a grad student. I didn't finish that part, so I'm going back to that. And I just published a paper uh, at the end of last year on uh, scorpion flies uh, mating um, and uh, traumatic mating uh, practices of males in uh, these scorpion flies, Japanese uh, or uh, Chinese scorpion flies. So I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing some of the insect stuff still, uh, dabbling with that, but mainly inter my interests are primarily in human behavior and psychology. Okay. Now, I don't know if, if, if you're ready to answer this, and, and if you're not, that's okay because it, it causes us to have to think on our feet. Yeah. How, when we can, so if we look at the, the tree, the evolutionary tree, I mean, the, the insects are quite removed from us. I mean, we're closer to certainly chimps, to dogs than we are to insects. But yeah. are there any homologies or analogies, so homologous or analogous trait that, you know, for our general lay people audience that you could say, you know, here are two homologies that we share with insects or analogies that we share with insects. Has that been studied much? Well, the analogies are there. That is the convergent right. uh, evolution of traits. Um, you know, fem female, female choice uh, works about the same way in uh, insects I've worked on as it, as it does in humans in the sense of uh, females going for resource-providing males, females going for males with high genetic quality. I mean, those are, those are principles of, uh, of femininity across, you know, the whole female phenomenon from, uh, 
from uh, you know even insects or flatworms all the way up to uh, primates, and so you got those kinds of analogous traits and male-male competition patterns uh, and so forth are are similar and analogous. The homologies um, that is not something that I'm uh, an expert on. I mean, there you know the the cell structures and so right. forth the same. Even with one-celled organisms, we got those homologies, homo- homologous features, and of course the genetic material has homology all the way through the tree of life. But um, has any has anyone studied? So y- you would expect that the closer you are to another animal in the kind of the grand taxa of life, then the the more homologies you are likely to have identified, right? So you're yeah. closer. They are X number. You're further. They are X minus delta. W- right. What I just said is that has that been documented? Oh, that's true. That, yeah. that is the tree. The tree itself is built upon degree of homology. Oh, beautiful. So fundamentally, the tree is a you know a, a description based on research on uh, homologous traits. Genetics is often referred to, you know, just just look at the genetic homology and you can build the tree. But then on top of that, you got morphology and physiology and so forth that backs up the uh, the branches and how they're related to one another and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. You know, see what I what I love. I mean, what made me fall in love with uh, evolutionary theory in general and then evolutionary psychology in particular is because I think the way my brain is wired is that I'm very much of a synthetic thinker, right? I So to to, to yeah. borrow a term from another Alabaman, also an eto, eto, uh, entomologist, E.O. Wilson, who recently passed away, right? Yeah. He, he's the one who kind of repopularized the term consilience. Right. When you think with an evolutionary mindset, everything gets connected, right? So I can now use parental investment theory trivers and I can show how, you know, the sex the sex differences that you just mentioned regarding the the, the female mates, how they choose in, in the fly context is the right. same as... So, I mean, yeah, to the me... Consilience, the consilience, I mean, if you're interested in consilience, which hopefully, you know, people interested in science are, but at varying levels... Uh, then evolutionary theory is where it's at because it's <laughs> general theory of life. And so if you're, you know, want to seriously think about and work on living things at any level, you got to be a, a devout evolutionist uh, for sure. But Ed Wilson and I, we came from the same place, same town. Oh, same town. Yeah. Same high school. And, uh, that I did not know that. My goodness. So he's about he would have been about 15 years older than you, correct? Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Right. Did you? Did you? I mean, did, did oh, you get yeah, we contact quite often? When I, when I first got started, uh, I went to Harvard a number of times and lectured and so forth. I was about the only one working on insects from a, I mean, you know, sexual kind of things. Ed and his group were working on different areas of right. social life and insects, but uh, I was a, uh, I, I did a, I did the original study of mate choice. Uh, in the in a field population of animals, it was an insect uh, study I did a mate choice, and so uh, I was kind of all alone uh, at that point. And then people really got into it, you know, and behavioral ecology arose and uh, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, Ed and I went way back. 
Oh, that's amazing. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of his, maybe my favorite quote, which re- relates to his work with social ants is, and I'm sure you know it, uh, when he was asked famously uh, about his opinion regarding communism slash uh, socialism, he said, great idea, wrong species. I thought that was such a, did, did you know that quote? No, I didn't know that quote, actually, no. Because, I mean, I mean, and again, that, by the way, captures one of the most important lessons that I try to teach my students, which is understanding human nature allows you to design products that are maximally congruent with human behavior. It allows you to design political and economic systems that are either antithetical to human nature or congruent with human nature. And what E.O. Wilson was able to do with that one little pithy quote is demonstrate that, yes, for social ants, communism is great, maybe not so great for humans. I thought that was just brilliant. Right. Yeah, that is. (laughs) All right. Uh, Before we get into some more uh, technical stuff, uh, I, as I was preparing for our chat, I wanted to kind of quickly glean through your CV, and I noticed that you've got a couple of behavioral and brain sciences paper papers. And uh, in a recent uh, chat I was having with a good friend of mine who's also a, a fellow academic at my university, we were both saying that it would be fun for no other reason than the, the sheer joy of doing such a paper to write one. Now, let me first explain to our viewers what a BBS paper looks like, which is different from other journals. And then I'd like to get your take on how it was for you to navigate the BBS process. So the way that the journal Behavioral Brain Sciences work is there's one target article, this massive beefy article uh, that, you know, someone writes, a couple of authors write, and then... uh, so you get a solicitation of a whole bunch of other people to write these commentaries, typically big experts in the field, and then the authors get a chance to rebut those. So within that one issue, you have everything you wanted to ever know about, say, you know, the evolution of empathy or whatever the topic is. So how, how was writing those papers compared to anything else that you've done in your career? Well, it's a chore, uh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, because you get, you know, uh, people, the, the commentators are all over the place and uh, always interesting, but it's quite a chore to try to give everybody some time when you're when you're responding and being polite, of course, uh, and uh, productive, trying to be productive and constructive uh, on the basis sometime of uh, comments that are uh, irrelevant <laughs> but you still have to make them feel as though they were heard that's right you have to touch yeah exactly you have to touch on everybody when you re- do the response uh, article but those those uh journals that journal uh is good in terms of impact yeah it's it a lot of readers and uh, so you get a lot of interest that way and it's cross-disciplinary which is nice uh, you should consider something like that for your interest to, um, you know, say, I don't know what you'd call it. Let's say evolutionary science uh, in the in marketing yeah. or something like that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would actually. I thank you. For th- now a literature, yeah. I mean, you know, because of you and some others, a literature you could draw on to show the empirical power of that connection and discovery power of that connection between marketing and evolutionary science and uh, then see what people say. And, you know, 
as you know better than 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 us certainly, but everybody who who works in business economics hadn't heard of evolution. Oh, boy, do I know! Uh, I I was the lone wolf for many many years before. Now it's becoming sort of cool. So well, I and I still receive some some animus. I mean, much less as you said. There's yeah. there's it's lesser. Yeah, it's yeah. gotten better. But there's certainly you're right that there is now a at least a small critical mass of folks housed in the business schools who are trying to apply the EP lens. And as a matter of fact, I have to thank you because in 2006, as I, I think I intimated in, in, in our intro, uh, for those of you who don't know, University of New Mexico has, you know, one of the top, you know, evolutionary groups, uh, I guess, across the, certainly across North America. They're all retiring though now. They, they all retired, that's right. Uh, is that true though? I mean, Steve Gengestead and all these yeah, guys? He's retired. He oh, oh, no kidding. About to go. Oh, I, wow. Uh, well, there was a whole bunch of real superstar evolutionists that were there. And in 2006, prior to my first book coming out, uh, you guys had invited me out there. And yeah. it was such an honor. Privilege. I mean, it was it was amazing. Do, do, do you remember that visit? Do you, do you... Well, yeah, that was great. Sure was. That, yeah. that was amazing. I, what, not Something not from University of New Mexico, but from that trip that I also remember is that I had uh, connected with a uh, wolf sanctuary I think it was about two or three hours away from Albuquerque. And they were kind enough to invite my wife and I to visit the sanctuary. And we actually went inside the enclaves with adult wolves. They had warned us, you know, don't don't act strange, be calm. I said, I'll be totally calm. I mean, we, we I grew up with Belgian shepherds who are really like wolves. They're these big military dogs. And uh, so one of the great things that I remember from that trip, other than coming to visit you guys, was that... Uh, the, the, the magisterial nature of hearing a wolf howl from mm. about two feet from you was one of the most magical things I've ever experienced. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with that uh, wolf sanctuary that I'm talking about? There's, there are wolves now at the, at the Albuquerque Zoo. They've got a big display of wolves. And then uh, there's a wolf thing I took the kid, my youngest kids to years ago inside albuquerque though. oh no no this was probably like in the middle of the boonies like maybe two hours away i'm nope. not familiar with that now i don't think it exists now oh yeah. is that right okay uh, are you still living in albuquerque yes uh-huh oh so so you, you consider obviously you've been there for many years so you wouldn't yeah. consider leaving now that you're retired i don't think that's going to happen yeah I've, i like where i live and uh, uh all that yeah I got you. Uh, just last point on uh, University of New Mexico. In the talk that I gave, uh, you know, when you guys had invited me, there was a young undergraduate student at the University of New Mexico who ended up coming to my university and he did a thesis with me because he had come to that talk. So look at the beauty of life, right? I mean, had I not been giving that talk there, I would have never met that student. And then he went on to do a a PhD at McGill. I don't think he stayed in academia, but his name was uh, Zach Mendenhall. I don't know if you ever interacted with him. I don't remember him, him no. Yeah, no. I think he he was he was more into the you know the 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 evolutionary psychology part of things, and uh, he also knew Jeffrey Miller, I think, and so on. Well, Jeffrey's still there, right? Je Jeffrey is on um, leave. He's huh. now working for a university in China. Oh, I see. Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. That's a new development, and uh, he's on leave, uh, unpaid leave, and I'm think he, I think he's deciding what he's going to do. He's going to come back to UNM, or he's going to uh, continue with the with the professorship in China. 
Oh, I, I, I mean, I know you said that most of the, the folks that were there when I visited are retiring. Is there a new batch of folks, maybe not as illustrious, but that are coming in that are going to keep the, the program going? There's a strong group in uh, there's a strong group in anthropology now. There's been developed, and especially in uh, like social endocrinology. Oh, that right. Angstead calls it social endocrinology right. and sex hormones and and all their uh, in, in all their uh, products and so forth and psychological and behavioral products. That's growing is going strong. There are a couple of people still in psych. Uh, there's some new people in psych, and that's good. And uh, but in biology, when uh, when I retired, they didn't. You know, uh, I was a very unusual hire for biology to you know study birds and insects and humans and all that and rape and all these crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna come. We're gonna come to that book. That's that's a juicy one. I remember during my visit at one point, you and I were walking, and I had pitched an idea to you which I'll remind you of it right now. And I wonder if anybody has followed up with it. Hopefully they didn't steal it from me. Uh, it was the, this was the idea that I was telling you, could it be that men's testosterone levels go in sync with a woman's menstrual cycle so that when she is least receptive to you know, sexual uh, advances is precisely when you would see a dip in a man's testosterone so that you synchronize their libidinal drives. Do, does that make any sense? Have, have you partnered, partnered men and women so they're in a romantic relationship. Exactly. That, and so the man can, uh, I mean, we know that the man can detect where she is in her cycle. That research has been done. Um, men are much wiser about that than tradition, you know, uh, told us. And, uh, but, and, and also, uh, men's testosterone level, let's see. Yeah, it does go up when the, the man smells the estrus in the female. Exactly. Or senses estrus in the female. And it's more than scent probably involved because her behavior changes and so forth. And even her looks change a little bit. It's more estrogen. She gets more attractive. And so the, the uh, testosterone level does go up uh, if for, for men temporarily. And these are not partner men. These are just men off the street. You bring them in. And, um, so that's going on. So I think that, that your idea was right, it would sound well, I think we found in a collaboration that we should have worked on back in 2006. Well, back then, uh, I mean, that was early in the, yeah. in the study of menstrual cycle effects and all that kind of stuff, you know. Which is a – sorry, go ahead. Finish your point. But all that is still – I mean, that's that research is alive and well and going – you know, I, we know so much about um, men and women's sexuality now that uh, compared to – 20 years ago. So this leads me, since we're talking about menstrual cycle, it leads me to arguably, uh, you tell me if it was the one that received the most attention of your papers. This is the one where you and Gengistead found, I think it was 1998, that uh, women are able to smell without seeing the men, it's to smell the symmetry of yeah. men. And so I, what I called it, and I, you, I'm sure you have a similar, I call it sensorial convergence, right? The idea being that whether, I, whether I'm going to use one sense or another, they should converge as to what is the optimal product. Now, I want to link, before I ask you to comment on this, I want to link that paper 
to a paper that I always ask all my doctoral students to read. It's a 1971 paper called That's Interesting! Exclamation point by Davis. Are you familiar with that paper, Randy? No. Oh, I'm going to have to send it to you. It's a 1971 paper, 1971 paper by a sociologist who was trying to come up with a framework to try to not quantify, but to try to come up with a set of criteria that would allow us to say what constitutes interesting research, right? So, I mean, we could talk about research that's methodologically rigorous, research that's theoretically justified, well executed, but all of those things can be true and yet the research could be terribly banal and uninteresting, right? Yeah. So how do we define what would be some metrics that we can use? And he listed a set of 12 criteria slightly different from each other, but they all have one thing in common. We thought it was A, it turns out to be B. So we thought that X and Y should not be correlated, but it turns out that they were. And so it'd be very easy to fit that study of yours within several of these criteria, because it is rather surprising to know that women can smell symmetry. Yeah. Uh, so Tell us about that paper. Is it the one that surprised you the most that made you say that's interesting about your own research? Um, yeah, uh, in a sense, I mean, the, yeah, the convergence of, uh, of sensory components, as you mentioned. So visually, symmetry is, is, uh, is nice for us to look at. I mean, we did those studies. We, we, we did, Carl Grommer and I did that exactly. study for facial symmetry, and it's... Uh, role in attractiveness judgments. That's the visual component. And then Steve and I were wondering about how the scent component might be uh, convergent with that because symmetry is a marker of developmental health. It's that component of health. And uh, so uh, we, did the, uh, we did the symmetry scent stuff. And yeah, it was surprising that uh, it works so well, and it's uh, been done in multiple labs. I mean, you know, it's got it's real, apparently. Well, you know, it's funny that you say it's real because I was once talking to a, a pretty, you know, well-known academic. I, I won't mention his name, and uh, he was so incredulous about that result because we were talking about you know hormones and you know the, its effect on social behavior, and so I I I referred to to that classic paper of yours. And he goes, you know, I still have a hard time believing that that. I said, well, what do you mean you have a hard time? You can't just levy that if, if it is what it, it is what it is. So I think it is one of those truly incredible findings that, that yeah. if anything, demonstrates that we are animals, right? Right. Well, one thing we, we didn't follow up on in that research, and no one else has either, is getting at, uh, I mean, the hypothesis is that it's got to, that, that uh, finding has a hormonal basis in the male. That is, more symmetric males smell better to women, especially when women are fertile in the cycle, uh, because of their hormone levels, uh, like testosterone or some combination of testosterone and um, you know stress hormone, low stress hormone, high testosterone. So we never followed up that component of that research, which would be uh, nice to look at. Very, yeah. very interesting. All right, let's get to your. Oh, Randy, can I just get you to center your thing? Because your, your, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, because we're, yeah, we're missing your mouth when you're speaking. Uh, your most controversial, I think, work ever. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Is the uh, book that you published with uh, Craig Palmer, the uh, anthropologist, 
where you were arguing for some, you know, using an adaptationist argument for why rape exists. And contrary to what people think, that doesn't mean you're condoning it, doesn't mean you're justifying it. That's one of the reasons why people hate EP, because they think that if you offer a scientific explanation, that means you are for it, right? Which I usually give the answer, if that were true, then we should be picketing against oncologists, because if they're explaining cancer, then they must be for cancer. They are justifying cancer. They are condoning cancer. So tell us that whole story, because I remember you had told me that you had to have police protection. Tell us the story. Oh, God, yeah, those were crazy years. Uh, Craig and I, we published the book, um, MIT published the book uh, in 2000, year 2000. And um, the first thing, New York Times picked up on it, did a uh, cover story on this. Uh, with, you know, they, they didn't give a very favorable and, and very uh, intelligent depiction of the book. And uh, then the crap hit the fan, so to speak. Uh, the media and so forth got involved and said, these guys, uh, these guys are saying that uh, rape's a good thing. You know, we should let all the rapists out of the prisons and all that stuff. Give them a tax credit if they rape, you know, that kind of crap. Uh, it was, so that got a little weird. And there were death threats and... Uh, um, yeah, the camp, the university was very concerned because I was getting so many death threats and uh, calls to the university to fire me and all this kind of stuff. And um, so the university had the campus police come to my classes. Um, and I, you know, I was teaching evolution of human sexuality that semester. My routine course was very popular. And so the police sat through the lecture, and uh, they enjoyed it. So they <laughs> you you got a few converts out of the police. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, the police. Department. So uh, that went on for a few years, and uh, Craig and I, over the uh, couple of years after the book was published, we did 600 media uh, events. Wow. You know, TV, radio, newspaper, magazines, we just split them. <laughs> we both like to teach, and we use that as a teaching element. So, you know, you got people that are interested in knowing some biology and teach them some biology through those uh, media contacts. And, I mean, all the media wasn't crazy, but a big component of it was uh, just anti-intellectual and stupid. Uh, about this stuff so this demonstrate i mean in a sense what we today hear about cancel culture in the culture wars which is of course something that i'm very much steeped in especially with my latest book the parasitic mind i'm talking about all these idea pathogens well i first saw these idea pathogens proliferating in the context of my scientific work and in the context of seeing folks like you you know where they people were trying to cancel you in 2000 Way before there was the term cancel culture, right? I mean, E.O. Wilson was trying, was being yeah. cancelled in the seventies. So but this same, same thing. It started with sociobiology. Exactly. So, so is do you I think hope. that this is just a an inherent part of the, regrettably, the human repertoire of possibilities, whereby when people don't like something, they just want to, you know, decapitate it in one form or another. Yeah, and if they if they think that. Uh, if they think that will give them uh, moral opportunity to moralize and to display uh, to their in-group and uh, 
that they're really good people and people aren't really like this. That's, you know, the way evolutionists say they are. They're selfish and uh, not altruistic and all that. Of course, that's not what evolutionists think. <laughs> but, but the ignorance component feeds into that, too. Uh, but even the, you know, Stephen Jay Gould from the Hominid and all was incredible. He was part of that same ignorant uh, level uh, in opposition to real science. Which demonstrates that even evolutionists, in this case, Stephen Jay Gould, Richard Lewinton, because yeah. they were parasitized by the Marxist doctrines, they couldn't be inoculated from, you know, tribal idiotic beliefs, right? Right. They couldn't get away from it. They couldn't be objective. They couldn't see reality because of the ideology. Ideology is so powerful. And that's one thing that's led me into my uh, the last you know 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> hold on on this. This is the parasitic stress stuff, right? I, I want to get to this. But before we move from the book, so we, we, we kind of talked about some of the, the, the negative reactions yeah. to your book. But give us kind of the synopsis of the actual arguments in the book so that anybody who might be watching this and you know have a negative view of what you might have said can be laid to rest. Well, the, the reality with regard to uh, sexual coercion, whether you're talking about in humans or in scorpion flies or birds or whatever, is that it is a mode, sexual coercion is a mode of sexual selection. So you've got... Uh, You've got, you know, male-male competition uh, as an uh, intrasexual competition for mates. That's one mode. You've got mate choice. That's another mode. And sexual coercion is a third mode. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's a way in which uh, males can increase mating success and uh, hence be successful in sexual selection. And... Uh, you know, you can. So it's a, it's a, it's fundamentally. If you're interested in sexual selection, you're going and serious about sexual selection. Then of course you're going to be interested in in sexual coercion because it is a mode of sexual uh, sexual selection. And so the argument uh, in the book was simply that uh, that's true. What I just said, it's a sexual uh, sexual coercion mode of sexual selection. So it's important for us to study that and um, understand it from the biological uh, point of view. Um, and it's important for us to understand it too, because it's a social problem in humans and a big social problem. There's a lot of sexual coercion out there, rape and uh, intimidation, harassment, you know, the three kinds of sexual coercion, rape, intimidation, harassment, very, very common in humans. And, and, if we want to do something about it, then we have to understand its causation. If you've got a problem, you need to understand its causation. When, you're, when you do understand the causation of a problem, then and only then are you in a position to do something serious about it. And, you know, these suggestions about how to stop our problems and so forth that aren't based on understanding causation, which can only come from science, are just... Uh, uh, just there about a waste of time, but uh, so so that was one part that we got to do the science on this stuff to get a detailed understanding of sexual coercion, and then we're in a better position to do something about it. So another part of the book was that um, that so sexual selection has created 
sexual coercion, but is sexual coercion in humans, okay, is sexual coercion in humans uh, reflective of an actual adaptation for sexual coercion, say a psychological adaptation for sexual coercion in men's heads, or is sexual coercion an incidental byproduct of adaptations in men for other purposes? This is the adaptation versus exaptation story, correct? Right, right. Those are the two alternatives. Uh, And that exhausts all alternatives in terms of the ultimate background of sexual coercion in humans. It's either reflective of psychological adaptation for rape itself in men's heads or uh, adaptations for uh, for things other than rape as a byproduct. Those are the two possibilities. And then that can be, you know, that's good news. Then you've, you've got it, you know, it's involved in, in sexual behavior. That was one big controversy, too. They uh, said a lot of the 70s uh, feminist uh, ideologues uh, did not like the idea that we were saying that rape has anything to do with sexual behavior. Right. It's only about power. It has nothing to do with sex. Right. That was the, that was the argument. And, of course, that's very stupid. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, r- r- human behavior can have multiple motives. So when a guy is raping a female, uh, he's, uh, of course, he's going to you know, be motivated to dominate her because it's forced copulation. He's, that's a motive. Uh, he's motivated to do that, but he's also motivating her, uh, you know, trying to dominate her to get sexual experience. So you can have multiple motives uh, involved in uh, human behavior commonly. So that uh, that was one big issue that we fought. Yeah. Uh, the sex, you know, rape is not sex uh, ideology. And um, so there's a P- there was a PBS documentary in the works about six months ago. They kind of did, did multiple interviews with me. A documentary about you, the experience of you having written the book and the subsequent reaction to it? It was cast as a documentary about the history of feminism. Okay. The history of feminism. So, of course, all this controversy and so forth that the book generated was part of the history of feminism in their view. But I haven't heard from them. And... Uh, I don't know if it washed out. Does that mean so you were preemptively canceled? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was. I mean, at least you would think the documentary would be maintained. Yeah, right. They got mad because they included me or something. I don't know. Oh, 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 oh. Maybe time. Are you gonna Are you gonna follow up with them, or you don't You don't care. I, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated now to try to follow up. <laughs> let me know. I mean, privately, let me know what happens with that. All right, let's move to what you what you uh, teased us about a few minutes ago about what you, what's been keeping you busy, among other things, for the past twenty t- years. Parasite stress theory. Before you even give us your answer, one of your other great papers that I love and I actually cite in my two thousand eleven book, The Consuming Instinct, is the paper with you and. Corey Fincher, one of your former graduate students, where you demonstrated that the distribution of cultural scores on individualism, collectivism, so Canada, US, Britain, individualist, Far East, Middle East, collectivist. Well, what you, so someone like me who's housed in the business school, I've seen a million studies using Hofstede's, you know, uh, metrics, but you never get at you know, why they are distributed the way you are. So here you come along and say, well, look, we could superimpose 
the density of pathogens across these different ecosystems and show that countries that score higher on pathogenic load will score higher on collectivism. That's another one of those papers that score very high on that's interesting because you would never think about making those links. So did I, did I cover that correctly? And tell us more generally, what is parasite yeah, stress theory? It, uh, at first, it seems counterintuitive. Right. Disease, uh, collectivism, individualism, connection. But then when you start looking at it, uh, I mean, the connection jumps right out. And I can explain why. Sure, go. Shall I go there? Please. Yeah. Uh, so the parasite stress theory of values, uh, we call it the parasite stress theory of values and sociality, because it's a general theory of sociality, um, is a scientific theory. So, And that is, we're interested in the causes of people's core values. And uh, I'll explain what I mean by core values in a minute. Uh, really what we want and need as, as people. And um, core values have been studied a lot and uh, by psychologists, a tremendous literature. And you can, you can, you can really carve it, uh, the core values phenomenon, in two ways. If you go to political science, Political scientists have this continuum, conservatism, liberalism. And so high conservatism over on the right, liberalism on the left. It's a continuous variable. If you're highly conservative, you're low in liberalism. High in liberalism, you're low in conservatism. So that's the way political scientists deal with the, with the core values phenomenon. And you go to cross-cultural psychology, and they have um, a different dimension in in, in uh in terminology, but we show that it's very fundamentally about the same dimension, and it's called collectivism and individualism, as you mentioned, <clears throat> for that Hofstede's um, uh, very uh, important work early on with descriptive. That was descriptive, but again, what causes this variation is what we were interested in. And um, so let's start with, let's start with, um, the collectivism, conservatism end of the dimension and to tie it to infectious disease. So if you, uh, so lots and lots of research on the components of these um, core values, what's correlated with what and so forth. So uh, the, the components of conservatism are uh, first xenophobia, that's one. And xenophobia is fear, dislike, avoidance, of people on the outside, things on the outside, out groups. And uh, that's the more conservative uh, the person is, the higher the xenophobia of the person. That's empirically uh, very strongly shown. And uh, another component of conservatism is ethnocentrism, which is uh, favoritism for people like you, the local group, your in-group, and so forth. And ethnocentric uh, uh, folks start with uh, the group starts with the nuclear family and then goes to the extended family way out. And, and others with similar values, like values, comprise the in-group of, of a person that's highly ethnocentric. And this more conservative, the more ethnocentric. Then other components are um, uh, neophobia. Okay, neophobia. Fear, fear of the new. Pardon me? Fear of the new, just so that people, yeah. 
Yeah, it can be, you know, it can be viewed as just a component of xenophobia because yeah. the person, the new can be a different person from yeah. the outside. But it can be different ideas, different foods. Uh, your, your students. Exactly, yeah. Lately, yes. Uh, just for 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 those of you who don't know what Randy's talking about, Randy was kind enough to accept uh, my invitation to serve on the thesis committee of one of my recent students who studied uh, these pathogenic issues as relating to conspicuous consumption and food neophobia. So thank you for that, Randy. Cool research, yeah. So neophobia is one of them, uh, to a component of conservatism, dislike, avoidance of new stuff, new ideas, new people, new foods new ways of thinking, all that kind of stuff. And um, another is traditionalism. That's, you know, conservative means conserve the status quo, right. be traditional. That's, what, that's where the conservative thing comes from. And authoritarianism is very strongly related to conservatism, too. That is the uh, liking uh, authority, traditional authority. Uh, you know, the uh, conservative leaders, uh, they love them and um, uh, religion, uh, traditional religious beliefs, all that. Your knowledge comes from those components, uh, re traditional religion, uh, the elders, the authorities, and so forth. Um, and uh, let's see, conformity is also a component of conservatism. You conform to the local values and uh, local behavior. Everybody follows the same rules. Everybody knows the rules. They're simple, and you follow them. Uh, and, uh, and another component of conservatism is uh, philopatry. And philopatry comes from biology. It means love of your country, your love of your place where you're born. And you like to stay there and live your life there. You don't disperse. Uh, and so those are really the components of conservatism. And if we start connecting that to infectious disease levels, uh, the, um, the correlations come out, uh, the connections come out uh, uh, very uh, quickly. So xenophobia, for example, is dislike of people, people and ideas and neophobia on the outside. And the way the host, the, the, the theory, the parasite stress theory is fundamentally based in knowledge of the evolution, co-evolution of host disease uh, dynamics. Yeah. And hosts and infectious disease co-evolve. And it's an antagonistic, co-evolutionary, ongoing, never-ending race between hosts and parasites. The parasites, by parasites I mean infectious diseases, um, are evolving to, to uh, eat the host and circumvent, circumvent the host defenses. The host is evolving to defend itself against the parasites. That's ongoing in all species of plants and animals. We all got our bugs that, that are after us. All species do. And um, so that's, uh, that's, that dynamic is going on all the time. And it turns out that those coevolutionary races of hosts and parasites are very localized, geographically localized. So over the range of a, of a host species, you get like a mosaic of uh, immunity. You get relative immunity to the to the local parasites, but you're not immune to the parasites uh, in, in races on the outside. The, the host, same host species, but different race. 
on the outside. And these things can be very, very localized. You get different strains of TB in different neighborhoods in Morocco. You get it strains of leishmaniasis in different villages that are a few miles apart in uh, Africa and so forth and so on. Very, very localized. We're getting, you know, all these local uh, uh, strains of uh, COVID popping up. New one, new one in UK now, just this week, was identified. So it's a localized kinds of thing, and you get the local immunity uh, to these infectious diseases. So xenophobia makes sense from the parasite point of view, avoiding parasites, because you avoid uh, infectious diseases on the outside by avoiding foreigners. Neophobia makes sense, too, because new ideas come from the outside often. And, uh, you know, innovative folks from the outside you don't want to you don't want to interact with them or their ideas because their ideas and and part of the uh, uh, immune response behavioral immune response behavioral and psychological immune response to infectious disease is it overshoots in the right. sense of in the sense of uh, it's it's very open minded with regard to uh, potential threat so you get all these uh, uh, outgroup prejudices and so forth that are uh, that are really extreme and don't make sense uh, on first first cut until you realize that uh, the behavioral immunity is designed to accept a lot of false positives adaptively. So that's like the pr precautionary principle, correct? Yeah, precautionary principle. Yeah. That's right. Um, so that's why you get these prejudices, not doing just the people that don't look like you and don't talk like you and don't think like you, but people, uh, overweight people, underweight people, uh, those kinds of prejudices are all associated very strongly with conservatism. And uh, so that's, that's the xenophobia part. In the ethnocentrism part of conservatism also connects to parasite stress in the following way. So when the diseases come, and if you live in an area of high infectious disease, they're coming. Uh, when, you, when the diseases come, you want strong local support, and you want a strong um, in-group and extended family and so forth to take care of you and your family to get you through the disease. So you get all these very strong family ties uh, and extended family ties and uh, lifetime friendships and so forth. <clears throat> of highly conservative uh, people. And then um, parochialism, you know, just just uh, just liking the local and so forth. That's part of ethnocentrism. And um, let's see, philopatry, I mentioned. Yeah. So it's it keeps you local rather than going into new habitats and hence new areas where new parasites will be. So that's how the conservative thing fits into infectious disease. So liberalism on the other on the other end of the values continuum is a great uh, is a great value system in the sense of uh, openness to different kinds of people. You have a bigger social group. You have a bigger mating pool. Uh, you're you're fine with people that look different from you, different color, different values, all those kinds of things. So you know it has its has its benefits. But the cost of liberalism is that openness uh, and interaction with different people uh, puts you at risk of infectious disease in areas of high infectious disease. So, um, so 
basically, uh, we, we, you know, started testing this by, by looking at the relationship between infectious disease levels across regions of the world uh, and uh, values. And the literature on values uh, was published, uh, descriptive literature uh, for every country of the world and states of the U.S. and so forth. The uh, political scientists and cross-cultural psychologists have done a good job in, in identifying and coming up with ways to measure this stuff, measure the values, and report that in the literature. And the disease uh, information was also in the literature from uh, from cross-country data from World Health Organization and places like that, from U.S. data, state data, from CDC. They keep up with infectious disease levels in the states. So we pulled the data <coughs> and looked at the uh, connection between the two, infectious disease levels and uh, level of collectivism, level, said differently, level of conservatism across uh, countries and states and found very, very high correlations between uh, these two. And then, of course, we we controlled for things that uh, scholars in these areas, political science and cross-cultural psychologists had thought would be uh, important in, in explaining these uh, cultural variables. And we controlled those analytically in sta with standard analytical techniques in our comparative work across countries and across states. And so then... Um, uh, experimental psychologists got into it and uh, very quickly after we did our comparative work and started uh, taking the system into the lab and looking at, uh, you know, showing people disease cues yeah. and um, looking at effects and change people's personalities. And as, as my student did, the one that you sat on the committee, exactly. Example of that. Yeah. Well, so uh, that, was a that was a fantastic uh, summary. Thank you. So a couple of epistemological points that I want to point to yeah. in terms of the importance of your work. Number one, it demonstrates the distinction between proximate explanations and ultimate explanations in that when you're referring to the political scientists and the cross-cultural psychologists and you use the term descript, they're, they're describing, what they're doing is they're drawing core, you know, the what and the how, as we say, when it comes to the proximate. You're coming along and saying, yeah, we know that these distributions exist, but why do they exist in that form? That's the kind of ultimate Darwinian why. So that's, I think, number one, incredible value of your work. Number two, I think it, it, it points again to the fact that evolutionary theorists are not arguing that everything is due to, the, to genes and to biology, but rather... To, to an interaction, right? And right. your work is exactly demonstrating that, right? It's taking a, a biological issue, right? Distribution of pathogens across different ecosystems and saying that cultural values, deep-rooted cultural values, both at the cultural level and at the individual level are in part shaped by the interaction with these biological realities, number two. Yep. Number three, you're applying, therefore, a behavioral ecological framework, right? Where you're studying... Uh, differences across cultures that are due to adaptive responses. The classic example of that that I love is the distribution of s use of spices across culinary traditions, which you know well, right? In hot climates, we have spicier food. In less hot climates, we have less spicy food. If I were a cultural anthropologist, I would simply revel in having identified that the Mexicans have spicier foods than the Swedes, but I would never ask the question why. And now here comes the evolutionist offering us very, very beautifully, in a beautiful way, parsimoniously, the explanation. 
So do you, I think that's really at the root, if I can compliment your work, that's at the root in a sense of why your work, this work is so important because it's hitting each of those epistemological points smack on. Yeah. The, uh, the spice thing, by the way, has been uh, tidied up. Mark Schaller and Damian Murray did a thing where they, you know, like you say, it's the, the original work was on temperature. Yeah in relation to spice use in the locale. But they actually did the infectious disease, and it works even better. <laughs> oh, really, eh? <laughs> but, uh, so yeah. rather than using the temperature as a proxy for the microbial stuff, right. I actually measure the density. It is right. a good proxy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, the parasites, infectious diseases, like it warm and, and moist, ideally, most yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. And so that works. it's a good proxy. But back to the proximate ultimate, I want to touch on that just a minute. Sure. Parasite stress theory of values is... Uh, a scientific theory, and it's uh, both a proximate and an ultimate right. scientific theory of how uh, what causes our, our core values, and and the proximate uh, domain, which I've uh, talked about a little bit. It's uh, the way we th we think it works is have an individual growing up, uh, or continuing to grow if it's an adult, but going through going through life and encountering the world. And if that individual encounters uh, infectious disease levels, uh, uh, and that can be through, you know, the reaction of his or her own immune system, how frequently it's, uh, how frequently it's activated and how chronically it's activated, when activated. It also comes from information from the culture in which the, the individual lives about infectious disease levels. You've got all this information as you're growing up as a kid about infectious disease levels. Some kids are growing up in high infectious disease areas, some in low infectious disease areas. Then when you become adult, of course, you have variation there too in infectious disease levels you're encountering depending on your culture. And so if, you're, if, the, if the information going in is high infectious disease, then you choose values on the conservative end. If it's low infectious disease, you choose values on the liberal end. And these are strategic values, as you, as you indicated. They're adaptive values for local problems, dealing with local problems. And then the ultimate component is evolution by um, sexual, natural selection has built psychological uh, adaptations that are specialized functionally in choosing values. And the, the analog that's more familiar to people, psychological analog, is, uh, is the psychological adaptations by which we acquire language. So we grow up, and these are special psychological specializations that, um, that, um, that by which we you know, choose our language, even our dialect and so forth. And the language and the dialect are for dealing with local problems, you know, communicating locally. The psychological adaptations associated with acquiring uh, values are functionally designed uh, by evolution by selection to get those values that work locally, and uh, so that's the that's the that's the ultimate and the proximate. Yeah, you, you're covering both. You're right. Now, uh, w one of the reasons, and I actually discussed this in my the next book that I'm currently wrapping up, uh, the reason why there is a maintenance of 
heterogeneity of personality types, or we could extend it to heterogeneity of cultural values, is precisely what we're talking about, which is there isn't a unique optimal personality type across all ecosystems. There isn't a unique set of cultural values that all cultures, right? So some traits are fixed. We now have 10 fingers and toes, unless you have a congenital problem. That's a fixed trait. But our our personalities or our cultural values are not fixed precisely because there are too many you know, variances of ecosystems where something that is optimal in one ecosystem would not be optimal in another one. That that really captures the the, the gist of it, right? Yeah. So you get the evolution of condition dependence. Exactly. When you've got this this, uh, ecological variation that is encountered by individuals in a lifetime. And I mean, these psychological adaptations by which we acquire our values are, are really getting more and more, uh, much more research needs to be done on characterizing their design. But it's clear that there is some openness to it. They remain somewhat open. So you can take, I mean, you know, some of the research that's a spinoff, we didn't do it, others did it. Uh, you bring people into the lab, you show them disease cues, and they become more conservative more xenophobic, ethnocentric. Uh, they become less open to new ideas and so forth and seeing these disease cues in the lab. And so that this this adaptation for acquiring values remains, remains adaptively open. Right. You know, uh, you, can, you can change a person's personality, basically. You can make them more open to new experiences, more, in, more introverted or more extroverted and so forth just by showing them disease cues. Adaptability, forgive me for interrupting you, adaptability is an adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I, I love it. I could keep you here for another two hours. Uh, let's uh, try to wrap it up with a few personal questions. Yeah. What's next for the great Randy Thornhill? You, I mean, you're still heavily engaged in research. Is this something that you will be doing until your last breath on earth? May it be in many, many years from now? Just be, I mean, by the way, you are exactly the model of uh, the pure academic in that you're not doing this because you want more accolades. You've got all the accolades. You're not doing it to get a full professorship or get tenure. That's what a real academic should be doing, pursuing knowledge unencumbered, unfettered by extrinsic rewards. So what's next for you? Just going to keep publishing? Uh, yeah, I've got this insect study I'm going to wrap up, and it, it's really, really cool. And I, I just got uh, distracted into other things when I was a grad student, some other cool projects, and didn't finish it. But uh, got that I want to finish, and hopefully this summer. Then now the big project I'm working on is on human rights. And that's part of this parasite stress. So, and across nationally and across the states, trying to come up with a, a metric for uh, across U.S. states, uh, human rights. Uh, there's, there's, there is a human rights researchers. It's a big area of research. Human rights researchers have come up with uh, ways to measure cross-national human rights. And, of course, parasite stress and conservatism is, uh, predicts all that. Uh, but we're trying to come up with a state uh, measure, too, of human rights uh, uh, legislation and uh, attitudes and values. And, uh, and I'm working with some other guys on that. So that's going to be our big, our big thing uh, pretty soon. 
Oh, very nice. Okay, last question, also personal in nature. So one of the things that I talk about in my forthcoming book in uh, one of the last chapters is, you know, you, you've lived a good life if, you, if at the end of your life you have few regrets that you could think of. And one of my former professors of uh, psychology, when, when I was a doctoral student at Cornell, uh, his name is Tom Gilovich, and he pioneered the distinction between two forms of regret, uh, regret due to action, you know, I regret the fact that I cheated on my wife and now my, my, my marriage has dissolved. So that's, that's, that's a regret due to something that I did, action, versus regret due to inaction. You know, I, I regret that I, I went into medicine and followed my dad's footstep. I hate medicine. I should have been a dancer. That's really what I was interested in. And I regret that I never pursued my career as a dancer, as an artist, as a whatever. And it turns out that over the long term, our greatest regrets usually are ones of inaction, things that that I didn't pursue. That's what that's what looms in my mind. That's what causes me to lose my tranquility of mind. So if I were to ask you at this stage, and you're hardly at the end of your life, but if I were to ask you, if you look back now at your one, two biggest regrets, do you care to share with us what those might be? I've never even thought about it. Really? No. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have uh, been raised... Uh, in a way, you know, like under a rainbow my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lucky. Uh, And, uh, I mean, the culture I grew up in, very conservative and so forth, but that generated a lot of curiosity in me. Uh, And um, so that that even had a benefit, you know, all the prejudice and so forth that I grew up with. that I didn't have, and I, I, that was a big mystery. And uh, so, even you know, even all the terrible prejudice. I mean, I can tell stories uh, about this. Um, like when I was a kid, in the culture I grew up in, it was common for middle class and upper class families to white families to hire a black uh, woman to come in and raise the kids basically right. so my family did that and i had a i had a so i had a white mom and a black mom yeah. uh, by the way i had exactly the same thing in lebanon you would have uh, like the, the 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 she would be called a selma like a nanny and actually her name was selma she was a, a muslim woman who uh, when she left our home when I was eight years old, I cried much harder than had I lost my mother then because I considered her to be more my mother than my actual biological mother. So, so I understand that dynamic. Say again? Why did she leave? Uh, I think she was getting married. Uh, and so she could, and she was already in her 40s. And she had really spent probably 15, 20 years. I mean, I think even before I was born, she had been our living sort of, I guess you would call it here, nanny. Yeah, and then right. she, she was in her 40s. She was going to get married. And I remember the day I was eight years old. This is before the Civil War began. And my mother was coming into my, my room to break this news to me, knowing that I would be devastated by this news because this was really akin to my mother because she was really the one who was raising me. Boy, I got you. I know it. Let me let me explain my situation. Sure. So um, the difference is in the in the old South, it was against the law for white and blacks to live under the same roof. So these so these women that would come in and take care of the white kids uh, were day they were there for the day. They couldn't they couldn't they'd have to go home at the end of the day. 
and uh, they had to have they couldn't use a white bathroom in the home. So my family built a special bathroom for her. And I was, of course, told not to use the bathroom, but I did because she was my mama. Why my <laughs> but anyway, uh, my my uh, black mama uh, died when I was 13, and uh, that was a tragedy because, in my mind, mind she was my mama, just right. like your yeah yeah yeah. Nanny was your mama, and my psychology said she was my mama as much as my birth mama, you know, because she had been with me. Uh, my they hired her when my mother was pregnant to come in and start helping. And um, so she got sick, very sick. And my family would not allow me to go see her. She lived in a little shack across the track, so to speak. Oh, my God. I couldn't go see her. And uh, finally, they broke down and allowed me to go over to see her. But I couldn't go in her house. I had to talk to her. Uh, standing on the porch, front porch. She was in the bed inside a little one-room shack. She was in the bed dying, and I spoke spoke to her uh, from the porch, uh, and she died five days later. Oh, my God. The prejudice and so forth of the family, through my research and all, I you know, understood them better. And, I mean, they, that was parental care from their point of view. Yeah, yeah me from infectious disease they were being good parents but at the same time it was very very hard on me because they wouldn't let me see my mother and even after she died uh, they wouldn't let me there was there was a funeral her uh, was, that was kind of a mess but uh, she died alone uh, and they buried her somewhere wow. uh, the black cemeteries, they just bury them in at the time. And, uh, but nobody would tell me where she was buried. I still don't know where she was buried. Have you, have you been able to stay in touch with anyone from her family, either immediate family or extended family through the years? She had a, a husband of sorts, but he was uh, not, not around much. She had one child, one boy. And he, as soon as he hit uh, 18, he left the South, part of the, uh, the black migration, as it was called, uh, beginning with Reconstruction in the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, um, black folks left the South because it was so uh, dangerous down there. And they were hanging, you know, sport, big sport, hanging black men on the weekend and uh, black boys. And uh, so he left associated with the black migration and went to, she thought it was Chicago, but she never heard from him again. So wow. I think he, he died up there somewhere, in the, you know, trying to find a better world. On the one in a million chance that that gentleman is still alive and is watching this show, please yeah. reach out to Randy. My goodness, would that be an unbelievable story? My goodness, what a, what a, I mean, yeah. what a story. Thank you for I sharing that. Of those stories. Say again? I've got lots of stories. Well, <laughs> so. I'm sure you've got a lot of oh, stories. Oh, I've got a lot too. Yeah. You know, but th I think the fact that you're able to uh, to have lived your life without having experienced too many debilitating regrets, I think it speaks to your fortitude, maybe your fortune. Uh, so that's... I'll try to spin it toward the positive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, all that stuff, 
And I've got, I've still got good friends down there in the South. And I have that traditionalism, that component of traditionalism. Sure. I mean, I grew up on the Tennessee River and I was, you know, fishing and hunting and swimming and all, all the time. I had my family bought me a boat when I was a little kid and go to the river and fish and hunt and stuff. And it's just a beautiful place. Absolutely beautiful place. And, uh, just a lot of hatred. <laughs> but I mean, you. I mean, I, I know that objectively, there's a lot less now. But if you're oh, if yeah. you're talking to people privately, will that hatred still come out, or do you feel that in a few generations, since those stories of yours, you know, we've pretty much eradicated that nonsense out of people's hearts? The younger people, uh, it's you know, generation related. So yeah. the people uh, after, it has to do with parasite level, yeah. you know. The whole, uh, the whole uh, social and cultural revolution of the '60s and '70s. I mean, that that occurred, and specifically and only in the West, because of lower infectious disease problems. You know, emancipation from infectious disease generated all the hippies and uh, liberalism and right. civil rights and that whole thing. That's that's one big piece of our story. Um, the, you know, you start off with uh, chlorinated water in the 1920s, and then you go to antibiotics in the 40s. Also, you go to uh, vector control in the 40s with insecticides, and uh, the, the history of health interventions is very well known, but medical historians and so forth. So we put, put all that on top of uh, what was going on in the West. How, did, how the hell did we get all those young hippies in the 60s, <laughs> specifically in the West? And uh, it was, uh, you know, lower, relative emancipation of infectious disease, less infectious disease than humans had ever encountered in the history of Right. Yeah. Amazing. What would be interesting is to see a longitudinal study where you then have an uptake again of exposure to you know parasites yeah, we're so, getting it now with these with it you know exactly and then you see that then you should see an uptake in uh, xenophobia and racism and so on are, are you you've got that data no i don't but people are studying it oh that's, i like it yeah wow. this is going on and on and on that's beautiful that's, fantastic it's really nice fantastic I'm looking at uh uh increases in uh some conservative values uh, especially in uh you know high, more diseasey places uh, again, back to the yeah, latitude, yeah. uh, southern United States, and so forth. And um, so that's going on. Well, listen, uh, Randy, uh, continued success. May you be as uh, happy in the next stage of your life as you've been in the past. Please stay on the line so I could say goodbye to you offline. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a delight and honor to have you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you.